Remember these ladybird books? I had two towards the taxi 30 years ago. They were really popular, these little hardback books. But these ladybird books were different because these ladybird books were for adults. I don't know if you saw them. The original, original print run ran to about 16,000 books. And uh, by the time we got to Christmas, these were the must-have books. And so it ended up 600,000 of these jolly little books being produced. And they were on topics uh, very, very varied and wide-ranging. You had how to be a wife. Didn't get that one. You had uh, the shed. I was very drawn to that one. You had the hipster. And I picked up the one that was entitled The Husband. And so as I uh, thumbed through the book, being a husband for 16 years at that point, I thought I needed to get a, a quick MOT and evaluate how I was getting on. There was advice on how the husband should be approached, when not to approach the husband. There was advice on etiquette that the husband would need. And there was also uh, tips on manners and uh, what you should and should not do in social situations. You may think that these verses are a little bit like that ladybird book. Did you notice verse 37? Jesus is in a situation where uh, he's in trouble because people think, oh, Jesus, he is the man of God, he's a religious person, and yet when we invite him round for a meal, verse 37, there's something wrong, says the Pharisees, because he does not wash his hands as he should. Now, every good parent teaches their child, don't they, to wash their hands before uh, a mealtime. Uh, I try and do that most of the time myself as well. But this is not about manners. It's not about ceremonial washings per se. It's not about social etiquette that you read in a ladybird book. It's far deeper and more important than that. Let me show you why. The Pharisees were the religious people of the day. The word Pharisee literally means separate one. And the Pharisees, what they would do to separate themselves from everyday life would be to take a good thing and make it into a controlling thing which makes it into a bad thing. You see, ritual washing, washing your hands, was a sign, an Old Testament sign and an Old Testament ordinance that it was to prepare God's people to approach him. It was a, an external sign of the need that we all have to have a clean heart. That's why it's so helpful to sing that song just now. To approach God on his terms, not ours, we need a clean heart. We need a clean slate. And so when Jesus, rather when God has written down for us in the Old Testament that we are to wash our hands, we are to prepare ourselves when we come to worship him, it's an external sign of an inward need. And the Pharisees take that Old Testament principle and they apply it absolutely everywhere. So they say, to be a separate one, you need to wash your hands. I wrote these down. Whenever you come in to a room, you need to wash your hands. Every time you have a meal, you wash your hands. You wash your hands before you're going to bed. You've got to make yourself different and better and more superior than everybody else. And so verse 37, when Jesus comes in and has a meal, dines with a Pharisee, verse 38 tells us that they were astonished to see that he did not wash his hands. There is a huge problem in the mind of the Pharisees because Jesus Christ is not externally pure. How do we know that he hasn't shaken the hands with a Gentile, a non-Jew, and so he could be impure? And so the Pharisees had taken a good thing and made it into a ruling thing, which makes it a bad thing. And they had taken this internal need and made it into an external barrier, 
We need to approach God on his terms. And the Pharisees have said, no, what we need to do, if we work really hard, if we clean ourselves up well enough, if we work hard enough, if we tick enough religious boxes, if we look externally clean, then perhaps we're clean on the inside as well. Now, I need to be careful because my wife's in the front row. There is a thing I'm told uh, in the kitchen called a washing machine, or a dishwasher, no less. I don't even know what it's called. Um, and apparently, there is a, all the difference in the world between putting your mug on the side by the sink and actually it getting into the dishwasher. But just imagine if I was to put something in the dishwasher just occasionally, and you take it out, having had a verbal wrestling match about the need to pre-rinse by hand, or the need just to chuck it in the dishwasher, because that's what it's made for. You can guess which side I'm on. Um, but just imagine you take the mug out of the dishwasher, and it's beautifully clean on the outside, but in the inside it's full of foodie junk. You kind of think, well, hang on, I'm just going to put it back in, or you might blame Bosch for not designing it well enough. You might even take it upon yourself to clean the inside. What Jesus is saying here in verse 39 is something very, very radical. Look at what he says. Look at you. Look at the cup. The outside of the cup is clean, but the inside of the cup is dirty. Here are the Pharisees of Externally, they look so clean, they're so consumed with washing their hands and making themselves appear like they can approach God on their terms. And Jesus says, you want to know the biggest issue is, is not when you get the cup out of the dishwasher, it's not when you present yourself as clean. The bigger issue is on the inside. And the problem for each one of us is there is a load of junk, food junk on the inside that we need to get cleaned up. And when you have the inside clean, the inside of a mug clean, you can't really clean the inside of a mug without cleaning the outside as well. You can clean the outside, and the inside can be dirty. But if you wanted to take that mug out of the dishwasher, put it in the sink, that's next to the dishwasher, I think, uh, and clean it up, something strange happens. When you clean the inside, the outside gets clean as well. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 39. And he takes these principles... And he takes on the Pharisees, they're in his, his gun sight, and he completely destroys, he explodes, he questions everything that they hold dear, that externally we can make ourselves good enough for God. And he takes aim on one thing in particular, verse 41, 42, and it's on something that us Brits hate talking about. It's money, it's finances. But one thing about working your way through a gospel is you can't avoid or you shouldn't avoid the difficult stuff. So we're going to talk about money today. We're going to talk about finances. And this is what Jesus says. Number one, first of all, here is a guide. Here is an external guide on being a generous person. Here's an external guide for being a generous person. Number one, everybody thinks that it would be a good thing if each one of us were generous, right? The trouble is that each one of us has different bars where you set the barrier of what being a generous person is. But being a generous person is a good thing. Biblically, there is a rule of thumb of what being a generous person means. And so this is what it says, verse 42. To the Pharisees, Jesus says, you give a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. These Pharisees were so consumed and so concerned with dotting every I and crossing every T that literally they would go out and they would get their mint and one in every ten 
they would say, well, that part of the mint plant is for God. That part of the rue plant is for God. That part of the, the rosemary, that's God's part. They were just so consumed with the detail, but in the heart they were unclean. The mug was unclean. Here's the Old Testament principle for generosity. It says in uh, Leviticus 27, you are to give a tenth of everything that you have. Leviticus 27, a tithe of everything from the land, where the grain from the soil, or where the fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Now the whole idea behind tithing before you run out the door is a good principle. Because everything that was given was for two reasons. The first part of the tithe was given for the temple. It was given to the priests so that they could uh, get everything they needed for our worship to God. Secondly, lots that was left over was given to the poor and the needy, to those who didn't have enough. So the first part was given for worship, the second part was given for care for the poor. And Jesus says, here is an external sign that you're a generous person. If you give 10% of everything you take from the land and give it to the priests who will care for the worship and care for the poor. Now, why does he say give 10%? Because, he says 10% of the land, because in a farming uh, and agricultural community, oh, most of the income came from the land, but who did the land belong to? The land belonged to God. And so it's God's way of saying, I gave you the land. If you farm the land and if you sell your crops and if you get lots of resources, lots of finances, if you're well off, if you don't pay me, if you don't give to me 10%, really it's like stealing because I gave you the land and you give me nothing in return. It's an external guideline. Now you might think, hang on, we're not farmers, but think of it like this, God gives us our brain. So if you're involved in employment, we'll use your brain most of the time. If you're involved in employment and you use your physical resources all of the time, or at least it feels so much, God says, I've given you those resources. And so out of those resources, an external guideline, a rule of thumb, a barrier to see if you're a generous person is if you give 10% of what God gives to you. But what is fascinating to me is this. In this passage where Jesus Christ is taking aim at the religious elite, at the separate ones, those who think... They can come to God on their own terms. Jesus could just sweep aside this Old Testament rule and say it's anathema, it's wrong, it's old hat, it's passé. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't set the inside against the outside or the external against the internal. He says both. Verse 42. Your tithe, you tithe, but you neglect the love and justice of God. You must do the latter and don't neglect the former. See what Jesus is saying? Giving 10%, giving a tithe is a good principle of where your heart is. Good principle of whether you trust God to provide for your every need. It's not a, it's not a rule to beat people with, but it's an external guideline to see if you're a generous person or not. It shows a gratitude of spirit and so Jesus says, you should be giving a tithe, Pharisees. But then he goes something far closer to our hearts and far closer to the Pharisees' hearts. At this point, you could hear a pin or perhaps a shekel drop. Because he says, you don't, shouldn't just be giving a tithe, you should be giving a lot more. You shouldn't just be giving externally, being generous with 10%. What's going on on the inside of the cup? 
says Jesus, verse 42. You should tithe. It's a good thing. I'm glad you tithe. But if that's all you do, woe to you, says Jesus. Here's the sign if you're a generous person or not. You give away 10% of your money. Here's the second sign. It's not just external guidelines. There must be an internal joy, number two. External guideline, you give away 10%. Number two, there must be an internal joy. There has to be a joy in giving, says Jesus. The big problem with the Pharisees was they just said, hey, where do we send the check to? Just give me the bank account and I'll set up the direct debit, but I don't care about the people. There's no joy. Verse 42, if you just give and you neglect the justice and the love of God, well, you're hypocrites. Give what's on the inside of the cup as well. Put your whole self into it. Put your heart and mind into it. Is there any joy in your giving, Mr. Pharisee? Do you see what he's saying? You look good on the outside. You make your bank deposit every week into the temple giving to care for yourself, but you've got no concern for the poor. You've got no heart of compassion. You just pay up because it's a duty, not a delight. You've got no compassion for those in need. You can give money to a charity, you can give money to a Christian organisation, and you have no heart concern as to what that charity or church or kingdom organisation is actually engaged with, can you? I've done this before. You can be uh, supporting somebody, in comes the prayer letter, and you've got no time to read it. If I had time, I didn't make time. There's no inner joy in their hearts. They just wanted to give money because it was the right thing to do. It looked like the outside of the cup was clean. And Jesus is saying, actually it goes far deeper than that. It's not just giving. You should have time in your life for those in need. You should have a, a generosity of spirit so that your giving is just an overflow of your heart for those in need, for the physically poor, for the spiritually poor. For those who don't have a home, if you've had a home, you open up your home. For those who need time, you open up your diary so you can give them time. For those that don't have friends, you make them your friend. You ask if you want to be friends. Can't make anybody your friend. But you get the point. Giving is just an overflow of a joy-filled heart that knows something of the grace of God. If you tithe and do it out of duty, woe to you, says Jesus. Cursed be you, says Jesus. Really strong words. You're a hypocrite. You give to the poor. They gave to the poor, but what's inside of the cup is very, very dirty. Instead, Mr. Pharisee, and perhaps even us, it's so easy to give to the poor. 10%, you've ticked the box, but actually what most fills our time and energies and mind is trading up to a bigger house, it's how we can use our resources for our next trip. It's how we can use all our money and our pay bump to get a new car that we wanted or to change the shape that we've got of our bodies. Jesus says one of the signs that you know that you're a generous person is that you give, but you don't just give, you care. And your money is just a resource for engaging in the lives of people. Instead of spending time and money on yourself, to the nth degree, you give to the poor what's on the inside as well as on what's on the outside. The money's just on the outside, but Jesus is saying, I want something far more. I want your heart to be engaged with those in need, spiritually, physically poor. 
So how do you know? How do you know if you're a generous person? How do you know if you've got this joy when you give? Here are three things. First of all, the way you can tell if you're giving the inside of the cup as well as the outside is this. Number one, when it comes to giving, you don't look at it and say, wow, 10%, that's too much. You can think it and say, wow, 10%, that's not so much. It's one of the signs that you're giving from the heart, not just externally. Number two, another way you can tell whether you're giving from the inside is whether you give with joy. Do you give with joy? Or is it just under duress and compulsion? Thirdly, you don't just give thinking that's not so much, I trust God. You give creatively. It's not just 10%. You think, there's someone in need. How can I give? How can I support? How can I give them out of time? How can I give them some of my energies? When you think about making more money, if you immediately think, this means I can do this for myself, then that shows that money's got control of you. But if you were to gain more money, if you were to earn more money, if you got a, a tax rebate or a share dividend that came in and you had a surplus, if you were to think, where could I support someone? Which charity could I give this resources to? Which church internationally could I support? Which ministry could I give a love gift to? Then you know that money's no longer got hold of you. You're released from its power because you're giving with joy and creatively and more than 10%. Do you know what's really interesting? Jesus goes on in this passage, verse 43 and following. And uh, he starts to speak to the Pharisees again. He says, woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues. He goes on, woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of the prophets and apostles. You will be buried in unmarked graves. Now, there's a deep irony in what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you Pharisees, you separate ones. You're trying to live your life so that people think well of you. You pray with certain voices. You wear certain robes. You, you're just about external religiosity. You want to be someone socially of standing that people look up to. But when it comes to money, if you hold on to it, Mr. Pharisee, if you just give 10%, actually what you find is you become someone who's far smaller, someone in an unmarked grave, someone who nobody actually remembers when you die. But if you give generously, if you give not just the outside but the inside as well, you become somebody someone remembers because you engage in ministries and in the kingdom and in the church, things that will last forever, way beyond after you die. Your money will last a lot longer than you will. You won't be like Scrooge in Dickens' A Christmas Carol. You know, he's got all the money in the bank and yet he's a shriveled man until he sees at the end of the story that if he gives it away, he gives life and his stature changes. The more money you give away, the more significant you become, says Jesus in his economy. Now, how is that possible? How can you give with joy? How can you give creatively? How can you think with the resources that God has entrusted us with? 10%, that's not so much. There's an external principle, 10%. There's an internal need, a joy. So where's the fuel? 
Thirdly, where's the fuel for that? How is this possible? There's a place in uh, 2 Corinthians 8 when Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing them, urging them to give to another church, a church in Macedonia. And the Apostle Paul writes this in uh, 2 Corinthians 8. He says, for you know, he's trying to inspire Christians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So Paul's talking about money and he immediately takes the Christians to the cross. And what is fascinating as well is he says, I would like money from you, Corinthian Christians, for the Macedonian Christians, because they're in need, they've got real issues, we need to support them. But I'm not commanding you really interesting. Paul could say, uh, I've trained you, I love you, you know me personally, we need to raise this amount, but he doesn't do it. He says, let me remind you of the grace of God. Let me remind you not about the rules of 10% or the principles, let me remind you of the fuel of your faith that you share with those Christian brothers and sisters in Macedonia. I'm not going to command you. You know the grace of Jesus Christ. If you give out of obedience, you're disobeying. If it's only obedience, you're disobeying. You're just like the Pharisees. But Paul is saying God commands, he demands generosity. Why? Because of what Jesus did at the cross. That's the fuel for our giving, it always is. You don't command a, a child to, to hug their parent, do you? You don't command a, a lover to kiss their lover. You don't bring someone who's dating along and say, hey, if you want your relationship to work, then actually some affection would be a good thing right now. You don't have to do that. It happens naturally. And so too, Paul is saying, there is a gospel need here. I want to remind you of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And they gave a huge amount of resources from what God had given to them. And one of my problems with money, and I've had it since I've been little, is that money has controlled me. Money has become too important to me, and God has just been chipping away at that, and there's still lots of chipping away to do. Everybody is controlled by money. This is a big statement. The poor can be so controlled by money that it can lead to crime. Middle-class people can be controlled by money, so it can lead to workaholism. I just need to get enough. The upper class, they can be controlled by money too. It can lead to a kind of a superficiality of just enjoying all the resources that they've got so they never serve one another or serve those in need. Everybody's controlled by money. When I was uh, seven years old, I had a little piggy bank, as we all did, a long time ago, but I remember it vividly. I asked my mum if she could help me to buy a present for my dad. It was his birthday. In my uh, little... Uh, Piggy bank, there are lots and lots of coppers and one silver 50 pence piece. And so my mum came in and said, it's time to pay for Dad's present. And so I got it out and I started to present it with the coppers and she said, I need that 50 pence piece. I said, I can remember it this day, not silver. <laughs> and she took it away. Uh, so money had this hold on me when I was six or seven years old. And just imagine this. How can we break the... Uh, power of money that it can have on our hearts. Imagine this. 
All the money you have is stuffed inside a jam jar. Okay, just imagine that. All the money you've got is stuffed inside a jam jar. When you get home, occasionally you go and check on the jam jar because when you see how much money you've got, it gives you comfort because you feel secure if it's full. But there are other times that when you're not at home, you can feel scared. What if someone finds a jam jar? And then all my money will be gone. Now just imagine that God in his grace puts a billion pounds in a Swiss bank account with your name on it, not Panama, in Switzerland, it's legitimate. Now how would you look at that jam jar? Suddenly the jam jar looks very, very small because you've just been given a billion pounds and it's safe. Friends, the only way that we will get rid of, that we will be loosened, that we'll be liberated from, we'll be freed from the power that money holds each one of us with is if we see what Jesus Christ has done for us afresh. It's the only way. Think about Jesus Christ on the cross. How do you inspire generosity in people? How do people give with joy? It's not by saying we need to raise this amount, you need to give more. But as we work through Luke, Jesus says to us, the only way to get rid of money's hold over each one of us, with all the concerns that we have, is if we see what Jesus Christ did for us. Jesus Christ on the cross was robbed. He was robbed of his glory, he was robbed of his humanity. He had his shirt stolen off his back. But if you see that all the riches that we have, if you're a Christian here this morning, all the riches that we have in him that we've been adopted, that we've been called, that we've been chosen, that we have an inheritance that will never perish, spoil of fate. If you see that, it's like the Swiss bank account. You are spiritually billionaires. And all that we have in this world, well, that's just like the jam jar that God has entrusted these resources with. We are so wealthy in Christ. And when you see that, you can be freed from the power that money has on us. Us middle-class people, we, we worry that we'll become poor. Poorer people, you can be worrying that you haven't got enough. And the only way to be free is if you give what's on the outside, but also on the inside as well. You might be thinking, hang on, it's all very well talking about money, but actually, I've hardly got two coppers literally to rub together. I struggle every single month. If that's you, whether you're a retired person struggling, whether you're not retired, you're struggling for work and employment, there's a huge encouragement in this passage. I don't know if you noticed it. Jesus says there's an external principle of giving, give 10%. But actually, we need to be giving from joy. Here's the encouragement if you're struggling financially. What Jesus says is most important is not the giving externally. What's most important is what's going on on the inside. That's what Jesus says. If it's you, he said, I'd love to give money if I had it, but I don't. I'd love to uh, give more, but I can't give any more than I'm giving at the minute. We should be tremendously encouraged because Jesus said, it doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. What matters is what's going on on the inside. So we need to be comforted. Let me close with this. There's one other great comfort in this passage. In the book of Malachi, the very interesting sentence on money where Malachi writes down, put me to the test, says God. Put me to the test. Bring in the tithe and wait till you see what I will pour into your life. It's a big statement on money. 
And what interests me, it's an astonishing claim because God is always saying throughout the Bible, don't put me to the test, don't put me to the test, don't put me to the test. And when it comes to money, he says, put me to the test. So I have struggled in my life thinking, I have children to support, I have a wife to support, and I cannot give that much. And I've failed to live up to the challenge of this verse. Can I encourage you, as I seek to review our giving, as I've done this week, and I'm going to act on it this week, Will we be a people who are known for radical generosity? Radical generosity that we give and support missionaries, we support others with joy-filled hearts. We give creatively, we give locally, we give to ministries that we care about. We're not just trying to tick the box, we're not just trying to give a percentage of our budget annually. What we want to do is engage with the world, we want to give to the kingdom, we want God's kingdom to grow and people to hear about the good news of Jesus. And very often, the spiritual thermometer, yes, is our prayer life. Yes, it's if we're reading the Bible, but very often it's seen. It's seen with our debit cards. It's seen with our checkbooks. Jesus says, decide on your giving by this external guide. Giving 10%. But it must be linked to an inner joy. Not just the outside of the cup, but the inside too. And it's a joy fueled by his grace. Let's pray. Father, this is a topic that us us Brits just hate talking about. We want to be private about it, but the Bible is not. So help us please to be challenged by your word this morning. Help us to review our giving. Help us to be uh, liberated from the bondage that money has on us. Help us to be freed from the guilt that we feel if we want to think that we just long to give more. Help us to be encouraged very much by the words of this passage that says it's the inside that matters. Please help us to be a generous people with all the resources you've given to us, not just our money, but with our homes, with our time, with our resources, with our friendships. May Emmanuel Epson be known as a people fueled by grace-filled giving and generosity of spirit, I pray. Amen.